Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Uh, today, we're going to keep walking with Jesus. And so we've been walking with Jesus. Not a whole lot of intro today other than to jump into the scripture that he's, uh, Jesus is going to be speaking. And we're just going to jump right in. And I want to uh, like warn you, the warm, cuddly Jesus that uh, we are used to is uh, not here today. So Jesus is going to show us a different side, a little more difficult side. And this is the next two weeks, really, is Jesus saying some pretty hard things that are difficult for us to kind of take in and ingest. And yet I think they're not just hard things, they're super hopeful. And so let's read it together and then we'll unpack it together. And Jesus is speaking in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, and he says, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he, the master, will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table, and he will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. But understand this. This is the first perplexing turn. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour where you do not expect him. Peter quizzically, asks, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And the Lord answered, who then is faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. He didn't answer Peter's question, did he? But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him and at the hour he is not aware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So, how is your cuddly Jesus now? Sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and you look up and then people are getting cut into pieces. So, it gets a little bit real. So, let's, let's see what we're dealing with as Jesus kind of starts this parable. Jesus gives us a, a bit of a parable about maybe his return. And they probably don't get it yet because he hasn't left them. And so, the idea that he's returning is, is a bit of a complicated concept. And so Peter then asks, who are you talking to? Are you talking to us or like the larger crowd? Who are you talking to? And Jesus, as we've seen him do week after week, sort of seemingly ignores it and then just goes into another parable. The first coming of Jesus, he was to be torn asunder for us. The first coming of Jesus. So people begin asking the first coming, second coming, Jesus coming back. There's all kinds of side conversations that will start that people will say, well, is it the first thousand years or what's the millennial reign or are you amillennial, premillennial? And they'll start talking about dispensationalism, and all these big theological things start coming out. Here's what we need to know. The first coming of Jesus was for him to be torn asunder for us. The second coming of Jesus will be where he comes to tear among us. And we'll talk more about division next week and what that looks like. But 
The first coming, he was coming to be broken. And the second coming, he will break apart righteous and unrighteous. And so come back to Samaria as we try to figure out what he's saying in this instance. Go to first century Samaria with me. First century Jewish uh, people walking through this uh, hostile land on their way to Jerusalem. So the question becomes, not a trick question, when do you light a lamp? No electricity, first century, what would look like modern Israel. When do you light the lamp? Nighttime. When the sun goes down, you light the lamp, and then that illuminates the inside. And think of a little genie in a bottle sort of lamp with oil in it, and you light the end, and that's how this works. And so you light the lamp at night. Why? Well, because otherwise it's dark. And so Jesus is sort of giving a little picture here. The master is away at night. The master of this parable, he's away at night. And I don't know about you, um, I tend to get sleepy at night. Just by show of hands, online you can uh, indicate this as well. Use emojis or type on the words. Um, morning people or night people? Morning person, night owl. So uh, morning people. So who are, who are our morning people in the room? Okay. And then who are the night owls? There we go. Okay. Interesting. It's always interesting that like some percentage, some majority percentage of couples tend to be opposite, which is just always fascinating to me how we get uh, kind of cross-matched that way. I don't know, I, I'm, I'm kind of the morning person. When time changed this last week, I sort of, uh, my brain low-key panicked because we finished dinner, and, you know, it was like 4.30 and it was dark outside and I was ready for bed. And I was like, what, a, what? It's dark, aren't we supposed to be sleeping? And then we have like six more hours to go before it's really bedtime. And that's a challenge for me. But let's start to apply what uh, Jesus is saying about this nighttime business. It's nighttime, we get sleepy at night. Whether you're a morning person, night person, doesn't matter. Eventually, darkness, we were kind of organized, wired up by God this way. You have a chronotype, but eventually circadian rhythms take hold, and most people, if given the choice, sleep at night. Jesus is pointing out that it is easy to drift to sleep in the dark. It is easy to drift to sleep in the dark, okay? No breaking news here. Nobody's, nobody's figuring out this is like some world-changing thing. What Jesus is saying is when the master is away, it'll be nighttime. What does that mean for us? We live in a darkened age, The master is away, and so we are then shrouded in a darkened age. What would naturally happen if we are existing right now in the dark and the master is away? What naturally happens is we are tempted to become spiritually sleepy in this world that is in darkness. And so short of lighting the lamp and keeping the lights on and prying our eyeballs open with toothpicks and all the various things it takes to remain awake in the middle of the night, we are at risk of becoming spiritually sleepy, of groggy, yawning, drifting off to sleep. And when we drift off, the problem is we drift off into a different reality. So we live in one reality, but then when you sleep, whether you remember them or not, some people are great at remembering dreams of an eight-year-old who remembers every detail of every dream, and she will tell you. If you want to ask her, she will tell you. Others don't know anything. They're like, I'm sure I did have dreams, but I can't remember a thing. Everybody dreams, though. Do you ever have a recurring dream? You have one of those dreams, you know, the uh, going off the cliff dream or the showing up to class with no clothes dream, or people have all the different dreams. I'm going to let you psychoanalyze me here in a minute, but um, I had a dream as a kid where uh, this was my recurring childhood dream, and I would take a ball, you know, softball, tennis ball, whatever, throw it in the air, and I would be playing catch with myself, which I'm starting to analyze that myself, and that's a pretty lonely existence. But here I am playing catch with myself in my dream, and the ball would go up, and it would come back down, and eventually, at some point in this dream, I would throw the ball up as high as I could, and it would begin to descend, except it was no longer the ball I threw up. It was like, you know, Earth-sized asteroid, and it was going to kill everybody. So more than once, 
I woke up in the middle of the night, ran into my parents' room, and shook my parents, said, I'm going to kill everybody. Wake up. I didn't really understand quite how alarming that might have been for parents to have your child wake up and say, I'm killing everybody, please wake up. And so my father would have to wake up in the middle of the night and go, what is happening? And then I'd explain the dream and, and he would have to go take me back to the room and what would he do? He'd flip on the lights. No ball, no asteroid, no planets descending, you're okay. And it slowly became like, oh, well that's, that's a thing. Later on in life, uh, I get married. My wife is not warned that I have a tendency to sleep talk and sleepwalk, and I have very vivid dreams. She's not warned about this, and so we're married uh, only for a few days. And I sit up in the middle of the night, and I wake her up alarmed. And I start positioning her on the bed. Your hip needs to be here, here. And I'm angry, and I'm very forceful, and she's like, what in the world is happening? She doesn't know I'm asleep. And I'm having this vivid dream, and I said, there's an old lady, and she has a cane, and if you're in the wrong spot, it's, nothing's going to work out. You have to be here. And she's like petrified. Who did I marry? At which point, she fails to do whatever I wanted her to do, because I don't remember this. She tells me later. And so I said, forget it. And I went back to bed. You know, I go back to sleep. I never woke up. And she, like, pulls the covers up with her eyes really big and goes, this was weird. No one told me that he's an insane person. We realize it's a joke. We realize, you know, I was dreaming. It's not a big deal. It's not. And so she's starting to relax a little bit. A couple nights later, I wake up again. I wake her up in a total panic. And I say, they're here. They're everywhere. And she's like, what? What's everywhere? And I'm scurrying my hands around. I go, the, the rats are everywhere. To which she says, this is the rest of my life. Why do I tell you these things about myself? Good dreams, bad dreams, weird dreams. One thing all dreams have in common, they're not real. Your dreams are not real. There's no, uh, no falling planets, there's no school nudity, there's no rats in the bed. It's not reality, it doesn't hold up. When the lights go on, the, the dream falls apart. It, it doesn't hold up to reality. So spiritual sleep is much the same, where we find ourselves drifting off into a place that isn't real, that doesn't last, that isn't eternal, and we sleep, and we begin to think that the things of the world matter and are important, and it isn't until Jesus shows up and flips the lights on that we go, oh, and we're awakened to a different reality, to a new reality. Paul writes it this way to the Romans. Paul says, this is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Again, this late in this early, this day, in this night, all this imagery continues to come up throughout the scriptures. He says, time is running out. Wake up, wake up. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. Wake up. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Paul is telling people to wake up. Out of slumber, out of the land of dream and sleepwalking, out of this alternate reality that isn't real at all. Shake off the urge to sleep. Shake off that slumber that says, ah, maybe the master's not coming back. I'll just live the way I want. And what Paul is urging us, what Jesus is urging us to do, is to live as if the master were returning at any moment. And in a world of darkness, that means we need to keep the light on so we stay awake. Live like the sunrise is imminent. So people say, so, so when is he coming back, though? So let's talk about, like, when is he coming back? Because it would be really nice to know if you just, you know, the blood moons and the, remember 2000, 20, the year 2000, that was a big thing. There's a lot of these prophecies that the world was ending at a certain time, and then that didn't happen. Then 2012 was the Mayan calendar, but actually they were like, oh, we got it wrong. It's the, actually the Aztec calendar is 2014. And these days keep coming, and 
no one's been right so far, right? So when? When is it going to happen? Jesus uh, talked a, a little bit about he's going to return. What he never did is give us hints about when. In fact, when people would ask about it, he would just obscure it further. No one knows the hour. Jesus doesn't seem interested in telling us when he's coming back just how we should be living when he does. So Keller says it this way. Tim Keller says, The point of the Bible's teaching on the second coming of Christ is not how we will find the great day, but how the great day will find us. And when I saw that, man, that's a weight lifted off your shoulders. It isn't about doing the math and connecting the dots. And it's not about the interpretation of when. It's about the activation of how. How am I going to be living? How will he find me upon his return? Whether his return, whether my reuniting with Jesus is by his return or my going to meet him. Either way, how will he find me living? Because no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus is less concerned with setting our watches. Psst, I'm coming back on Tuesday, 6 o'clock, be ready. It's not happening. Then keeping us on watch. He's not interested in putting it in our calendar. He just wants us to be ready and on watch and be living as if it was tomorrow. Be living as if it was 10 minutes from now. What would we be doing differently if we knew the master was coming home today? How do we avoid being the sleeping servants then becomes the question. What lulls me to sleep in this world? All of the distractions in the world that are lulling us to sleep. You're sleepy if you believe that your salary or your GPA is more important than your identity as God's child. Right? We begin to be, be, believe the lies of the darkness, that your salary is actually more important than who you are, who God says you are, that your GPA matters more than, than who God says you are. It's not that those things don't matter. It's not that they aren't useful. It's not that they're not important, but they aren't, they aren't, they aren't primal. You get sleepier every time you believe the lie that, that what your friends think or how successful you are or what you drive or where you live, anytime you start to believe the lie that those things really actually matter, you, you are getting sleepier. You are being lulled into sleep. Sex, money, status, clout, power. That's dream world stuff. It doesn't last. It's not eternal. It doesn't last. It's temporary stuff. And so if we begin to be lulled into a place where those are the things we are focused on, those are the things that drive us, those are the things that motivate us, that becomes the purpose of our existence, then when the master comes back, he will find us in the dark, asleep into a world and a reality that isn't real. Jesus is calling fake news on the world before that was really a thing. He's saying that stuff's not eternal. It doesn't last. If someone's cutting words linger just a little too long, that means you might be drifting off to sleep and you might have forgotten what God says, that you are his son or his daughter in whom he is well pleased. Every time the lie of darkness comes in, our job is to confront that lie with truth, the light. So when you feel poor, I wish I made more. I wish I had more to spend this Christmas, gosh. The reality is you are wealthy in grace and mercy. You are wealthy in Christ, the Savior. When you feel less attractive than you wish you did, that people don't find me appealing. I wish I, was, wish I, wish I had washboard abs and I wish I had all these things. I wish I didn't have hair that was falling. I wish. God says, you are so attractive to me. I'm so drawn to you as a created being that I would choose to give myself to you. When we feel unimportant and insignificant, we say, God, I'm just not that important. God says, wrong. I call you an heir to the kingdom of God. I consider you worthy of inheriting the kingdom. When we feel powerless and lacking control, God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So you actually have my power flowing through your veins. Over and over and over again, the darkness tends to tell lies. The darkness tends to introduce shiny things and distracting objects to try to get our focus off of what it should be. So what do we do? How do we push the sleeplessness away? Just like when a child 
child's having a nightmare. When a child has a nightmare, what do you do? You rush into the room and you flip on the lights. You flip on reality. You're not in the dragon's grip or there's no planet falling or whatever the thing is. It's not real. We flip on the lights. And what we see is we're in this familiar, safe, secure spot. The lies of identity are out there and they are attacking every single day. This is the season of marketers' dreams. This is the season where marketers want to convince you that you would be made perfect or you would be made whole or you would be happier if. And they're going to sell you every variety of product and lifestyle, every variety of false joy and fake happiness and temporary lift, and none of it lasts. We have to keep our lamps burning, according to Jesus. Keep our lamps burning, meaning invite God's reality back into the room. I am who you say I am, God. Even though the world says I'm not enough, even though the world says I don't have enough, even though the world says that I should care about all these other things, I am who you say I am, and my purpose is in you alone. I remember as a preacher, preachers like to talk about the negative emails they've gotten. I don't know if you've noticed this. I do this too. Whenever a preacher, this is the smart, this is behind the curtain, come on back with me. When a preacher is going to say something controversial, the preacher usually says, and I know I'm going to get some emails about this, and that's a psychological trick that we use to uh, kind of a little subterfuge. So if you think, oh, he's expecting the email, maybe you won't send it after all. So we actually get less emails on those days. But Preachers are, are, are known for whining about the negative emails they get when they preach something someone doesn't like. I remember the first time this happened to me. My wife will nod her head and remember the first time this happened to me. I got probably 2,000 words sent to me about a sermon. My notes were like 800 words, you know, and I got 2,000 words back just ripping every piece of it down. And I, I didn't know what to do with it. I was a little bit crushed. I got all those physical in, interactions that would tell you maybe you're really upset, and I was trying not to be and stuffing it down, but I'm sweating and breathing's getting a little short. I'm like, this is upsetting. I take it to our pastor, a friend of mine, and I said, look, I don't know what to do with this. And he goes, is there some truth there? Probably somewhere in there. But he says, your approval's not in that person's opinion of what you said. If you said what God had you to say and you, and you spoke truth and it didn't land well with them, that's not up to you to worry about. What he was saying in, in light of what we're looking at today is, and there's, there's all kinds of darkness that wants to come in, and if you allow your identity, if you allow your approval, if you allow your hope to be in, do they approve of me when I say words out loud, you've already lost. It has to be, did I say what God had me to say? Am I a child of the king? Am I loved and, and, and approved by him? And if so, yes, you're going to say things that aren't quite right, or yes, you're going to make a joke that offended somebody, or yes, yes, that's going to happen because you're not perfect. But your approval doesn't rest on those things. You don't need to get upset about those things. They're going to come. And he's right. They do. And I'm able to respond in grace now in a different way. But those words were really important to me because it set me on a trajectory that allowed me to say what God had me to say. This was most important in 2015. 2015 was a season in our country that started having these mass shootings. They were kind of increasing in, in scope. And then a young man by the name of Dylan Roof walked into a church in South Carolina, sat down for a Bible study in this black church, waited just a bit, and then mowed down nine people. And it was this kind of turning point moment where we realized there was kind of something wrong. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, the race conversation in America comes and goes at times. And in a lot of ways, that was a, a real inflection point where we started having a pretty honest discussion about, about racism in our midst. He was uh, in news pictures and on the, on the television and internet, you saw pictures of him with Confederate flags on him and, and using that as a symbol. And it was a symbol of hate for him. 
And now, we were in South Texas, where many people would have the Confederate flag as a bumper sticker or a flag up in their garage or kind of casually displaying it as a symbol of history or legacy or, or some other uh, thing. And I stood up in front of our church, a church of a couple thousand people, and I, I said, look, I have to address this today. And I knew it wasn't going to be popular with a lot of people. But I said, we have black brothers and sisters. This is a very diverse church, probably 40% white and 40% Hispanic and, and 20% black and Asian. And, and I said, there are people in our midst that this symbol that you think is history or legacy or something else entirely, this symbol represents something crushing to them. And so if I love my neighbors, I love myself. If I love my black brothers, I love myself. I take the bumper sticker off. I take the flag out of my garage because it's a piece of fabric. And this is a heart and a soul that is wounded by that. And so I told our church, I said, it's a sin. In our culture, that is a sin. And there will be people today who have that up in their garage. I'm not saying that your intentions are bad. I'm not saying that you mean it that way. What I'm saying is if we love our neighbor as ourselves, then I would want to do nothing that would cause them to feel lesser, that would cause them to feel oppressed. I want to do nothing. I don't care what that is. And so I challenged our church in that moment. I said, take it down. Remove it as a, as, let's, let's get beyond this idea that I have a right to display what I want and let's get to the idea that God calls us, God calls us something greater, which is to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. And I laid out this impassioned plea to start our service in the aftermath of this shooting in South Carolina. And as I said this in our church of six, seven, eight hundred people in the room at each different service, dozens got up and left. Ten minutes into the sermon, they were done. Grumbling the whole way out. I got plenty of emails that week. The security team said the next few weeks were very interesting. I didn't feel any sweat that day. My heart didn't race that day. I felt like the lights were on because the darkness was creeping in on the outside. The darkness was saying, just don't say anything. Let them be asleep. Let them drift off. Let them think it's okay. Don't challenge people. It's okay. They'll like you more if you just don't address it. And every context is different and every issue is different. And we pick our, and, and choose the way that God would get us through these things. But in that day, I knew I was supposed to speak to this. And it was evidenced by the fact that dozens of people left the church that day and never came back. And that was the evidence that it was exactly what we needed to say. We needed to challenge people to love someone more than a flag or a symbol. That the lights had been turned on in me and I realized I was not approved whether they stayed or not. I was approved because God loved me and God sent his son to die for me. And as a result, I, that moment was huge for me because I began to live differently so much more honestly. And that's the thing for you and I. When we live in reality, when we live in that honest reality, the world notices and the world doesn't always like it. We're not promised that we're going to be popular. But if we live out God's purpose in our lives, if we live the honest light, then things start to change. And the light begins to swell and the darkness begins to be put back. Charge to keep our lamps burning, to be aware of when the darkness is coming. When you keep your lamp burning, two things become true. When the lights are on, you know two things. One, you're awash in the light. You're awash in grace. But the second thing is, when the light's on, you can also see all the imperfections. And so that brings its own conviction. In a darkened room, you don't know that there's crumbs on the table or you don't know that the carpet looks dirty. When you turn on the lights, you see all the imperfections. And so when you and I live in the light, it's God's invitation to us to not only bathe in his grace and his light and his beauty, but it's to see the places and be convicted of the areas of our life where we need to be better, where we need to lay that down to him. We need to clean this up. We need to go to him for help. The light is both grace and conviction, and it's beautiful. 
Darkness can't take over the room when the lamp is burning. And so Jesus says, be found doing what you're supposed to do. Verse 43, he essentially says, be found doing what you're supposed to do. When the master returns, be found doing what you're supposed to be doing. Trim your lamps, be dressed for service, stay ready. I worked at a restaurant on the Riverwalk in San Antonio, a big tourist hub, and we opened at five, white tablecloth, Italian restaurant. If you came in before five, if you found your way into the, in the restaurant, you would have found all of these people who were buttoned up with starched shirts, with the white tablecloths and the hand-grated Parmesan cheese and the $80 bottle of wine. You would have found all those people. There was music blaring and shirts are untucked and we're throwing things around the kitchen and it was Thunderdome. Whether you're slicing lemons or polishing silverware, there was no sense that anybody was coming in. We weren't ready for service because we knew service started at five. How different would that scene have been had we known that it could start at any time, that whenever the door opened, we had to be ready for service. We would have had our shirts pressed and our tucked in and we would have been ready and the, the silverware is polished and the, the lemons and the parsley and all the, the prep is done and we would have been ready. And that's the difference is that we don't get to have an opening time. Jesus isn't whispering 6 p.m. on Tuesday. He's saying, be ready. Because the owner is going to return at some point. The master's coming back to the house and what will he find us doing? Jesus is essentially saying to you and to me through his disciples and his teaching, he's saying, live as if today's the day that you will meet Jesus face to face. Whether by his return or our departure, live today as the day you get to meet him. He's saying, wake up. Not I'll give up that ugly sin tomorrow. Not I'll stop sleeping with her next week. Not I'll stop gossiping right after this juicy tidbit. That's sleep talk. That's sleepwalking. That's fantasy world. Jesus says, wake up. Jesus invites us to be awakened by his presence so we might live awash in his light and his love. He invites us to be awakened in his presence so that the darkness that tends to crowd in can be pushed back out where it belongs so we can be whole and flourishing in him who created us so we could live ready and whole and full lives and flourish and have greater, result, greater joy as a result. Jesus wants to invite us into that. And when we go to sleep, we live in a world that is not of his making. But we have to wake up to the beauty. We have to remember that we are who he says we are. So when the darkness creeps in, we have to be able to flip that light on and speak that truth. Turn down the volume on the world and turn up the volume on God. Keep our lamps burning, be dressed for service, be found doing what he's called you to do, and then watch, as the scripture says, how God entrusts you with more, with greater things, how he draws you in further, how he increases your intimacy, how he tops off your joy, how he pours out his fullness and his flourishing in your life. I'll end with this. Those who await the light most eagerly in the days to come, those of us in that house, waiting for the master with the lights on, dressed for service. Those of us who await the light most eagerly in the days to come will shine most brightly in the coming days. Do you want to live the life you were designed for? Do you want to live the life that you were created for? Do you want to live your fullest and best and most glorious life? The trick is to be ready for him to return tomorrow and be found doing what he's called you to do because as we live in the light in the days to come, the coming days will be awash in it because we're ready. Let's pray. Father, your teaching can be difficult. 
God, there are times when uh, I would like to cut pages out of the scripture because they're more difficult to deal with than others, that they don't, on the surface, encourage or lift up. They feel like they're cutting. And Father, we know you to be the good uh, gardener, the good pruner, that you're getting rid of those things that hold us back. You're getting rid of the things that limit our growth in you. So, Father, my prayer is that for those of us in this room who have found ourselves maybe more asleep than we thought, those of us in the room who are, are, are closer to being in darkness than we are in light, may this day not be pure conviction, but conviction with grace on the other side. Father, will you increase the light in us? Will you increase the presence in us? That we begin to recognize those areas that, uh, God, that just aren't real, that aren't permanent, we begin to recognize those things that fall short and we would exchange them for you. More of you, more of your love, more of your grace. Lord, as we do that, I pray that for each person in here, we would be aware that uh, your return is imminent. And whether that's 20 minutes or another 2,000 years, that's up to you. Father, our prayer would be that you would encourage us and inspire us and move us along the journey to be found doing what you've called us to do, to be found living the way you've called us to live. So Lord, we lift up our lives to you. We ask you to shine a light on them to show us exactly what we have and then to live in that light with you as we go forward. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.